Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Changing world. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance, DNA. Tonight we have two stories that feature water and Matauranga Māori traditional knowledge sitting alongside Western science. Later on, we'll speak with two researchers involved in conservation translocations of freshwater species. But first, Te Whakaheki o Te Wai is a project to better understand groundwater in New Zealand. The ambitious project is funded by the Endeavour Fund of the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. It's developing a world-first series of maps showing the source and flow patterns of groundwater in aquifers and large river catchments across the country. This information will help us better manage this important source of fresh water. I'm off to GNS Science to meet researchers Amber Aranui from Te Papa and GNS's Catherine Moore and Uwe Morgenstern to find out more. Groundwater is all of the water beneath the ground and it is a major source of the base flow in rivers. So when river flows get low, that's basically groundwater. Groundwater is also pumped out for irrigation supply and for drinking water supplies. Now, when I think of groundwater, I think of aquifers. So is all groundwater an aquifer, or are aquifers a subset of groundwater? Aquifers are a subset of groundwater. They're groundwater that is in more permeable rocks, so we can extract more water from those aquifer groundwater than, than groundwater in general. So you can have groundwater in clay, but you wouldn't call that an aquifer because you're not able to extract that water at a high rate. And so this is all water, it's sitting between gravels, it's sitting in the pores of soil and clay, things like that. Exactly, yeah. And is there much of it in New Zealand? There's a lot of it. There's particularly a lot of it in areas where we have a large gravel alluvial fans underneath the ground, so in, in Canterbury and in the Hawke's Bay and uh, also in the Hauraki Plains. There's not so much gravel there, but we have good large aquifers there. Can you put a number on the number of aquifers and groundwater catchments, I suppose? There's less than 20 very large aquifers in the country, but there's some very localised small aquifers in very small valleys. But there'd be no more than 20 regional huge large aquifers. What interests you particularly about groundwater and aquifers? What I'm most interested in is how to take the laws of physics and different data that we have to be able to make predictions of future groundwater flows and flows into rivers and and groundwater quality given changes in land use and abstraction. What about you, Amber? 
For me, it's probably a little bit more personal. So my background isn't in groundwater, but uh, the area in which this project is based is where I'm from. So for me, it's about uh, ensuring that my community, that my iwi, uh, my whanau, have clean water to drink um, and are able to interact with the water as they used to from the past right through until, until today, whether that be eeling, whether that be fishing, whether that be having places in which they're able to harvest harakeke, um to weave. So has your iwi's experience with water changed? Yes, you know, in the past, uh, the Hiratonga Plains area was largely swampland and waterways. And over time, and with uh, European arrival, those lands have been drained, which has changed life for Ngāti Kahununu, you know, over the last few hundred years. But water's still really important. And that's really visible in the way in which they've been really active about water issues with the uh, local and regional councils, and particularly through Waitangi Tribunal claims. Have you ever given much thought to groundwater, to this water that we can't see that's underneath us? Prior to this project, no, I hadn't. Uh, And I'm learning so much. I have a growing interest in this topic now. You know, for me personally, where I live, I look at water a lot differently, thinking, where do these streams come from? Are they coming from that aquifer or are they feeding it? And, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm really, I have a growing interest in water, particularly, you know, for, for community health and well-being and and I just think, well, it's good for Māori, it's good for everybody. So if we can support, you know, local iwi and, and some of the issues that they have around water, um, then that benefits everyone. And what about you, Uva? What interests you about groundwater? My interest mainly is in understanding how the water moves through the ground. So we are measuring uh, isotopic signatures uh, of the water molecules, and that can tell us uh, where the water has been recharged uh, and also how long it took the water to flow through the aquifer. Can you explain that a bit more to me? How do you age water? Yeah, so uh, there is uh, one uh, tool for uh, groundwater dating, which is uh, tritium. Tritium is a cosmogenic isotope, so it's uh, produced by cosmic ray bombardment uh, of uh, atmospheric uh, nuclei uh, like argon and nitrogen. They disintegrate into smaller particles, uh, smaller elements, uh, and some of them are radioactive isotopes. Uh, One well-known is radiocarbon, but there's also another one, uh, which is tritium. And tritium is a radioactive isotope uh, of hydrogen, and being hydrogen, it's part of a water molecule. So that's why it's uh, the perfect tracer for uh, groundwater dating for the uh, hydrologic cycle. And using the radioactive decay, we can basically just measure the concentration in the rain compared to what we find in the groundwater, and we can calculate the age of the water. So what sort of ages are we talking about for groundwater? Most aquifers in New Zealand which are being used, the water ages are below 100 years, typically probably in the range of 10 to 20 years. So if I was in Canterbury, for example, I'm thinking Christchurch gets its water from a big aquifer and I turned on my tap, how old's the water coming out of my tap? In Canterbury, the situation is slightly different because the city supply uh, is mainly uh, from deep uh, groundwater wells, which are thousands of years old. So we're drinking water there that went underground before humans arrived in this country. Yes, that's right. Yeah. We hear a lot about pollution from nitrates and phosphates in our water supply, but at the moment we're drawing out water that's you know tens, hundreds, even thousands of years old. So is water that we're currently putting into our groundwater system 
Are we going to wear the consequences of that in hundreds or thousands of years' time? So we, we're not really seeing the signature of that yet? Yeah, so we don't need to look uh, hundreds of thousands of years ahead. We can just look decades ahead. And uh, a very good example is Lake Rotorua. In the Lake Rotorua catchment, uh, it, it had been recognized in the 70s that there's a problem uh, in the lake. So a lot of remediation has been done in terms of fencing farms uh, of waterways and also building uh, treatment plant, water treatment plants. But yet the water quality had deteriorated further in, in the 80s and 90s. Uh, we measured the water flows, so the rivers and streams which flow into Lake Rotorua, and all of that water is actually between 50 and 100 years old. So what we are seeing, the nitrate load going into the lake, uh, what we are seeing now is actually the load from 50 years ago. So uh, that is basically just the tip of the iceberg. So we will see more nitrate coming into the lakes uh, in future. So there's a load still to come? Uh, we actually call it exactly like that, load to come. Yeah. Now tell me about this new Endeavour Fund project you have. Basically we're using groundwater models to predict the outcome of, of different management scenarios, but they're very uncertain, these, these groundwater models, because, because we are, are unable to look below the ground apart from at a few discrete places where we have a bore and then we take a sample. So there's a lot of uncertainty, so we're trying to bring in more information to help inform those groundwater models. So this project is about bringing in the isotope information that Uve's collecting in, in more effective ways and bringing in the indigenous knowledge that Amber's um, collating into models. So we need to design our models in a different way to, to make use of that information. So this is about mapping groundwater and then modelling what might happen to it. Exactly, yeah. And so we're trying to do that at a number of scales, at a number of large scales to help regional rules and policy, but also at very small scales where we're looking at the security of a water supply or why that stream beside that marae no longer flows, so from local to very large scale. We're mostly focusing on Herotonga Plains. So describe the situation in the Herotonga Plains for me in terms of groundwater. In the Herotonga Plains, most of the groundwater in the upriver is recharged from the Nauru River around the area uh, at uh, Royce Hill. This water gets underground, uh, is basically lost from a river, flows further underground toward the coast and it has uh, high flow rates at the beginning but then further to the coast the flow slows down uh, until it's very slow. There is also large amounts in the southern Herontunga Plains which are actually recharged from local rain. We do know this uh, from various signatures. Uh, so first, the groundwater contains a slight amount of nitrates, so the river water doesn't uh, have nitrates, so this is already an indication that it is recharged from rain. But uh, also this isotopic signature is clearly not that of the Nauru River. So it's quite complicated then, some of it from rain, some of it from rivers. Yes, so it is a very complex situation, and we also see... Uh, preferential flow paths uh, which we, uh, where we see very high flow rates uh, and uh, very young groundwater in, uh, in these uh, flow paths which we can interpret as uh, paleo river channels, buried paleo river channels. Oh, okay. So places where rivers used to flow. How old is the oldest water in this catchment? 
the oldest water which we have uh, just detected uh, is uh, at uh, a depth uh, of about uh, 250 meter uh, with uh, about 4,000 years old. Okay, so we've got 4,000-year-old water going on here. We've also got some very young water. Most of the water which uh, is being used uh, is in a range of uh, zero to about 10 years. So since you come from the Amber, how is the water being used? So bore water is important in the Herotonga Plains? Yes, yes. There are a number of communities in which bore water is, is their main way of getting water for their community. Um, my own community in particular, which is Pakipaki, you know, I remember as a child st- staying with my nanny and kuru and knowing that the water was a bit weird and that was because it came out of the bore. Um, interestingly, now that water can no longer be used and so for me one of the interesting things about this project is finding out more about why why can we not use that water anymore when did it change from being sort of drinkable usable water to um, water which is almost stagnant and so does that relate to a lot of the land use now, um, farming, agriculture and that type of thing? Because it affects our communities, you know, we've got our elders there who become sick, you know, they're not able to get in enough water, particularly in the, in the summer months, you know, and so for me that's important, and particularly in and around our marae too, you know, we have a lot of people coming and spending time there and, and we have to host people there and we need to make sure that, you know, that there's enough water you know, we have the right to have our own water. I know through talking to Komatua and reading um, tribunal claim documents that the Hiratonga Plains, was they started to drain that land in the 1860s. So that's when, um, I guess, changes in the landscape in terms of water uh, began. You know, prior to that, um, the Hiratonga Plains was a really rich water source and our people lived in and around the area and up in the high ground compared to today where we've actually moved um, in onto the plains. So, you know, the fact that there are very little archaeological sites on the plains shows that that's not the place that we, that we used to live, but it was the place where we used to gather kai and other resources. In August 2016, contaminated water in the town of Havelock North caused a Campylobacter outbreak. It made over 5,000 people violently ill, and it was linked to three deaths. Uva says testing and an understanding of the groundwater system of the Herotonga Plains helped solve the problem of how contamination occurred at one of the town's water supply bores. Most of the Herodonga plains are confined, so it's a confined aquifer. That means uh, it's uh, overlain by an impermeable layer, so it's basically protected from surface contamination. But uh, Havelock North is very close to the boundary of a confinement, and this is where uh, contaminants from the surface uh, got into the groundwater wells. Exactly occurred on this place called Brookvale Road, and about 100 metres from one of the water supply wells for Havelock North, which were on Brookvale Road, there was a remnant puddle um, beside a stream that occurred after high rainfall and sheep came and defecated in the puddle and um, that contaminants from the sheep poo (laughs) moved into the aquifer. But it did it very, very quickly. So it moved from the puddle to the well within a day. And that's the problem, that it moved so quickly. And so the normal microbial decay, that's our sort of factor of safety that provides us with secure um, drinking water wasn't there, you know, just travelled straight from the, the puddle to the well and then everyone got sick. 
And the reason that that could occur, that very, very fast groundwater could occur, is because of these things we call open framework gravels, which are, as the alluvial gravels are deposited, some of those, usually it's a mixture of silt and sand and clay, but on these corners of the river, some of that clay gravel gets re-sorted and then it becomes very free-draining gravels, and we call them open framework gravels, and they're very, very small. So you're looking at a picture and you've got a pen... It's only the width of a pen, basically. It's only the width of a pen high, so, and then maybe two metres wide. And throughout those alluvial sequences, there might be, say, 10% of these lenses of open framework gravels, and 95% of the water in an aquifer flows through them. So they're like the arteries? They're like the arteries, yeah, exactly. And they are what transports water very, very quickly, and they're what causes the danger in, in terms of our water supply contamination risks. Right, so in that situation it was just a a perfect storm of one of these arteries of open framework gravels, a contaminated puddle and proximity to a bore. Exactly. Part of our programme is to understand these water flow pathways uh, from the surface uh, into the groundwater system and to the drinking water wells. So drinking water security is uh, very important for our program. We want to understand better uh, how we can uh, uh, create uh, secure drinking water sources uh, from uh, aquifers. So and one understanding is uh, uh, from what we just heard, the time, the travel time from the surface to the well is very important. If it is too quick, then there is no way of filtering out and decomposing contaminants. Uh, So we need to basically identify wells which uh, have no young water fraction in them. We get that information from Uwe's water dating, which is really important. The other thing that we have to do is when we're trying to predict the risk, we have to make sure we represent those open framework gravels in our model, and that's difficult because they're so small. But if you model a, a wellhead protection zone and ignore those open framework gravels, you get a much smaller wellhead protection zone that basically underestimates the risk of contamination at that well. If you represent the open framework gravels, you get these much longer tendrils of um, potential areas of risk around your well that need to be accounted for. Now, you've just pulled up something on your computer screen that looks like a lovely piece of abstract art almost. (laughs) There's a white ball... But then, as you say, it's got these tendrils drifting off, a bit like kelp. From your point of view, what am I looking at? Actually, I call them hairy plots. <laughs> so because I see something similar to the kelp, each of the white lines is movement of water from the ground surface to the well through a homogeneous medium. So that's those white lines. But the kelpy lines is movement over a certain time period. Remember we were talking about that microbial decay before. We know that if we have a travel time of a year, pretty much we won't get sick if we drink the water from that well, if if it's all older than a year. So these are all plots of travel time that's taken a year. The blue lines, the kelp lines, those show that you have to travel a lot further to represent that one-year travel time. So in terms of clean water, when it comes to groundwater, time is your friend. Time is your friend. And if you're needing to predict how much area shouldn't have um, sheep, (laughs) 
farming on it, you would, if you wanted to accurately represent that prediction and the risk associated with that prediction, you would want to make sure that those open framework gravels and the kelp-like travel pattern is represented. However, until recently, it hasn't been. So these open framework gravels are a very good example uh, of how complex uh, groundwater flow paths uh, actually are. So what we, uh, where we can see the open uh, framework gravel on the surface, we can't see them deeper down because they, they are not exposed. Uh, but from our isotope methods, uh, we could see uh, flow paths uh, over many kilometers uh, containing very young water. So what we see uh, with the open framework gravel on the surface in very small scale also exists in, in very large scale uh, in the ground system. So this program is about understanding the hydrologic cycle as a total. So including from when the water falls as rain in the catchments, how it transfers into the rivers, into the discharges from the catchment, and how that river water then feeds uh, aquifers. So this uh, interaction between surface water and groundwater and the time scales are very important uh, to produce validated models uh, about these flow systems, uh, which then can be used for a more efficient management of the environment. My part in this project is to understand and acknowledge the importance of Mātauranga Māori or Indigenous knowledge and in fact that Indigenous peoples actually hold a lot of information and also scientific information about the land and the water in which they live. For Māori it's a taonga, so the more we can do, particularly with uh, projects like this, to help um, us understand what's going on under the ground and, and I guess as a consequence what we're doing to the water, it's really important for our future. Many thanks everyone. Catherine Moore and Uwe Morgenstern are from GNS Science and Amber Aranui is with Te Papa Tongarewa. Kei te whakaranga mai kwe ki tō tātou au hurihuri, hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tātou au whānui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, University of Canterbury researchers Chanel Toms and Ashling Rain work in freshwater conservation. They are strong advocates for the idea that Mātauranga Māori, or traditional knowledge, should sit equally alongside more traditional Western conservation practices. They recently helped co-author a paper called Reimagining Conservation Translocations Through Two-Eyed Seeing. I catch up with them in Christchurch to hear more. Kia ora, I'm Chanel Toms and I am uh, Ngai Tahu Ngātukuri and of Ngai Tuhoi descent. I'm also a PhD candidate at the University of Canterbury. I've worked with Kekewai or Kewai or freshwater crayfish, Koda, and I'm currently working with Kākahi, which are freshwater mussels incorporating Matauranga principles and with how we work with these species. So there's a lot of knowledge to be gleaned from this area. Like Māori have been here for over 800 years and we've coexisted with these species. So stuff that we can bring to helping develop strategies to help preserve the species. We have a lot of knowledge of how things were prior to colonisation. So we have a lot of knowledge of what the habitats and, and stuff were like before developments. I suppose in a way we became part of ecology, part of the cycle. We were instrumental in things like translocation. So we helped with species movements. That's interesting because 
species translocation, moving species around, is a real sort of linchpin of New Zealand conservation. But it tends to be done with a Western perspective, with a Western yes. science perspective. And what you're basically saying, if, I, if I'm understanding you right, is that we're missing a great opportunity there because Māori know those species, they know the ecosystems they work in, they have a knowledge that we just haven't tapped into before. Māori have a holistic view. A really good example is that down south, you couldn't get karanō, which is a um, papyrus species, a, a seaweed. Right? They didn't have the right kind of rocks for it. But they were aware that karanō grew on certain types of rocks. So they didn't just grab the seaweed from somewhere and then plonk it down into this bay. They actually brought the rocks with it. So they were aware of the type of habitat that this species needed. Yeah, I suppose the only way I could really describe it is more of a holistic approach. So it's not just taking the species and putting it somewhere. It's also observing and understanding the requirements of that species and making sure that where they take them is somewhere that they can persist. So with something like kākahi, the freshwater mussel, where are you doing the translocation to and is that a place that you knew, for instance, that there used to be kākahi there but they've disappeared from there? Okay, so my research is actually focusing on understanding the requirements for translocation. I mean, our environment's changed so much now that um, personally I feel that it wouldn't be a good practice to just pick an animal up and just pop it somewhere when I don't know what it really requires or, you know, if that habitat is actually okay for it. So um, I think what we needed to do is we need to do more investigations. Well, that's what I've been doing, more investigations as into the kind of substrate that they prefer. Do we really know what kind of substrate they prefer? You know, people say that they're found in sort of like soft sediments. I've done a survey and I've found them in all kinds of sediments. i found them amongst boulders, you know, gravels, cobbles. So maybe that isn't such an important consideration. Maybe it's other things. So did Māori move kākahi around? There's a lot of speculation. So there's a lot of speculation that we did. OK, so for the South Island Naitahu, we have what we call the um, Kaaratawhito Trail. So we had these trails which were used for trade routes. And what I found quite interesting is when I looked at historical distribution from like the 1850s and there, they kind of match quite nicely to those trails. And then when I did my survey, I've actually put that over those trails and it's like, hmm, I need to do more analysis on that. But just from looking at it, it looks like that they are matching up quite nicely to those trails as well. But I think that one of the strongest bits of evidence that we might have to suggest that Māori were very involved in translocating species is that we have a species of freshwater mussel, Ecradella Aucklandia, and they're in the far north. Um, I think there's some just above around Wellington area, and then there's nothing in the South Island until you get to the Deep South. So there's this great big gap. So even though mussels need fish hosts to uh, recruit to new areas, they're usually on a fish for about 20 days, but I doubt very much that the fish has swum from Wellington down to the bottom of the South Island. So that does strongly suggest that maybe Māori were involved in translocating. So this is obviously only one aspect on the project you're working on. So what are the kind of points you covered in the paper, what were the issues you were trying to raise that you thought were important? Kia ora, I'm Ashling Rain. I'm a Pākehā PhD candidate at the University of Canterbury. Well, I think really our paper centred around our partnership and what that looks like in, in our particular context because we have a really fantastic group that encompasses knowledge of all kinds. For example, I work with DNA, so I'm a geneticist, 
And that's a really useful tool that is incorporated quite frequently into translocations and threatened species management. Uh, But that's only one tool in our toolbox. And we also have people who have a lot of knowledge around ecology, around mātauraka, and language practices, and also connections to the land and to the people around these areas. And so when we bring all of those aspects together and we're able to weave things like our Western science, our mātauraka Māori, and all the practices and people that that encompasses, then we have a really strong approach that is incredibly well-suited to our local context here. And so, for example, we are working really closely with Tūhaitara Coastal Park, uh, which is just a half-hour drive from here, and Te Nohoaka o Tukio'o, which is another wetland further down in um, Otako. For the paper, because we're focused here in this local context, Te Tiriti or Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, was really central in framing how we work together as partners. I guess for us, our, our partnership within the framework of Te Tiriti or Waitangi was really centred around governance or genuine co-governance by mana whenua, uh, so the people with authority over the land. And that means that all decisions around these translocations are led first by Māori and that any research from then is entirely co-developed and co-designed and that everyone's involved from the very start to the, to the very end. It's not consultation with local iwi or local renanga. It's engagement, so we actually work with them. And as a scientist, when we conduct experiments um, on animals, it's not always possible to return them from where we were able to um, source them from. And so they are sometimes euthanised. However, for myself, I'm Māori and I don't believe in that. So um, the good thing is where they were sourced, even though it's a wee way from here, is within the same Rūnanga Takiwa. So working with the Rūnanga and um, talking with the right people. After I'd finished with my experiments, I was actually able to give them back to the Arunanga where they had found somewhere to place them. So I was quite happy with that. Yeah, so that is a translocation, but it's not really a translocation because it's we've gifted them back, and then um, this, that is what the Arunanga has decided to, to do, is to place them in an area. But that's their decision, and so it should be. It is their takiwa, it is the area, and they're the ones that should say, you know, what's going on and what's not, yeah. Mm. When we're censoring uh, mātauraka Māori and in general indigenous knowledge then what we do is we have far more of an intergenerational focus and taking a much more holistic approach we end up, particularly for our species that often don't have quite so much attention in conservation and western science such as our freshwater species here in Aotearoa we have a much better chance that they're going to be monitored and cared for long into the future because local people and communities have been involved from the very start and that is their place and their land, their waterways and and their species. And through that connection, it's much more likely that those early translocations will go on to become a thriving ecosystem long, long into the future. And, for example, 
Fertu Haitata Coastal Park and Te Nohuaka Otuki O'o. These translocations are part of a 200-year-long vision for the future. And so we are just now taking those first um, early steps to begin restoring and enhancing those ecosystems. I think the biggest issue with a lot of translocations worldwide is that there's this big lead-up to the event. There is the big event, which is very well publicised, and everyone gets in on that. Then the animals are translocated, whether they're terrestrial, freshwater or whatever. They're translocated, and then there's no follow-up. There's no monitoring. There's no way of telling really how they're doing. You know, they don't, it's not actually part of the plan. So the plan that they set out is to actually put them in this area, but then there's no follow-up. Whereas when we're doing it alongside Runanga, when we're doing it as part of engagement, then we know that they're very much invested in it as well. And um, there is going to be ongoing monitoring. We are going to find out how well these populations are doing. You know, we are going to get that information. So by writing the paper, what were you hoping to achieve? Set out a, a model that other people can use? Set, set a challenge and go, I think we could be doing this differently and better? This paper was published for an international audience. We spoke from where we could speak from, which was the places and the people that, that we work with, in the hope that there are lessons there that others elsewhere can take away. And we did end up putting together a very general model, if you like, but all that model really encompasses is that it relies on trusted relationships, genuine co-governance and co-development of uh, these conservation translocations. We also talked about the two-eyed seeing framework that McMuck Alder, Dr Albert Marshall describes as bringing together the strengths of one knowledge system with the strengths of one or many other knowledge systems. And so really it's just a way to capture that there are many different ways of, of knowing and seeing and that they are all valid and important. And when you bring those together, then you can achieve really profound change. Speaking from a Māori perspective, we have a very holistic view of things and very good view and understanding of the big picture. For me, for the other side of the tool I'd seeing is the scientific side, where it's more compartmental. So they look at an issue and they see it almost kind of like tunnel vision with this issue and they can bring a lot of understanding and knowledge on this issue but it's yeah it's still only this little wee compartment but being able to incorporate this whole holistic stuff with it means that um, we can expand on that and it actually becomes something that can be applied. There are many different ways of thinking about how we might bring together different people and knowledge systems to try and achieve these common goals. It's like monitoring you've got your standard like I suppose scientific way of monitoring I think like Māori have the cultural health index so neither is better than the other but they just address or look at things from a different perspective but they still come up they still give very valuable information yeah it's not about you know assimilating or integrating indigenous knowledge into western science and by western scientists it's about bringing people together who all come with their own knowledge and practices and perspectives and through partnership then we can begin to collectively um, apply those different knowledge systems 
with these translocations, we've been weaving uh, genomic data, uh, so using DNA alongside ecological knowledge and mātauraka Māori to co-develop these translocation strategies for species such as Koda and kōwaro. And, for example, uh, Levi Collier-Robinson, who was a co-author on the paper, his ancestors had a lot of knowledge around uh, the Canterbury Plains. And for Kōwaro, which are now critically endangered and we don't have so much knowledge in Western science on their historical distributions, he's able to go back to the knowledge of his ancestors, uh, some of which is captured in the Kaitahu archives, and begin to think about how their distribution of the past might be influencing the patterns that he sees in their DNA today. And so for him, he's able to bring together his Western science expertise and the mātauranga that he carries from from his tipuna, uh, which is a really powerful approach for conservation. Thanks, Ashling. Ashling Rain and Chanel Toms are at the University of Canterbury, and they are two of the co-authors of a paper called Reimagining Conservation Translocations Through Two-Eyed Seeing. And that's me for tonight. Head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld, to listen again, find photos and links, or subscribe to our email newsletter. Our Changing World, the podcast, is in all the usual podcast places, and on Facebook and Twitter you can find us as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'm Alison Balance. Catch you next week. Paul Marie.